my name is Saxon McKinman from Chicago, Illinois. Moved out here to, to Denver, Colorado pretty recently, a few years back, just before the pandemic kind of started. Um, I've been in the, the renewable energy space for about seven or so years, started on the retail energy supply for, uh, side of the business, so scheduling data and real-time power for, for power consumers or, or retail consumers, um, and also doing natural gas nominations. Uh, and then I've also spent some time on the operations side of the business, so managing thermal combustion turbine and some, and uh, combined cycle power plants uh, all across North America, including you know Chicago, Texas, and then uh, Ontario as well. Uh, and then more recently, I've kind of uh, entered the renewable side of, of the business where uh, I do kind of commercial origination and offtake efforts for renewable energy developers. So the company that I'm with now is National Grid Renewables. Uh, I've been there for about six months and National Grid Renewables was recently acquired uh, by National Grid, who were formerly known as Geronimo Energy. And you know we've kind of cut our teeth in the United States power space developing uh, uh, utility scale wind power plants as well as uh, solar scale. Facilities as well as long and additionally storage technology also um, through various markets in the United States. Uh, my kind of scope or role at this company uh, and just in the broader renewable energy space is I'm what they call an originator. Um, so we, our company goes out and develops projects in various markets in the U.S. Um, and you know before these projects are built, they we, we kind of view them as, as assets in various markets, and we want to find power offtake arrangements. So when you go and, and build a renewable energy facility, um, you know, who are you going to sell the power to? There's generally underlying markets in certain areas. So the Texas market is, is ERCOT, and then there's, there's other markets like PGM in the east and the northeast, uh, New York ISO, New England ISO. Uh, the Southwest Power Pool in the Midwest, and then and then MISO as well, and so these are are power markets that you can participate in. But then within these markets, um, there are also the utilities that actually buy power and, and serve load to customers like us. So generally, when we're developing new power plants, we're um, you know trying to develop within these markets, but then ultimately sell to the utility. Um, you know, in in Denver, the example of that utility be XL Energy, obviously. Um, and so those are kind of our customers, and my role is to uh, structure uh, power offtake uh, agreements with the utility to sell the power. Um, so, you know, my role would be more on the business development side. So, you know, you know thinking about new assets that are going to be built uh, in a few years from now, that's when I enter the picture and try to find the kind of optimal offtake structure that benefits both the seller and then the buyer as well. So that that's my role, but I can kind of just give a high-level overview of you know, how renewable energy developers think about development in the U.S. and kind of the key considerations. So I kind of touched on this, but first off would be kind of the underlying market. Um, when we think about where we want to put our next power plant, you have to, you know, form an agreement with the with the utility to basically inject power into the system. And so the first step in that process to do so is you you have an interconnection request to inject power onto the the broader grid. Um, so when we are 
trying to cite a new project in a new market. We're basically thinking about where there's large infrastructure for transmission lines, you know, whether it's a 230 kV T line, 345 kV T line, or, you know, a large substation that can, you know, handle power to be injected on the system. We identify whether, you know, additional power can, can uh, be injected at that location. And then we look for land in that kind of respective location. And there's a lot of flat land with good solar resource or wind resource. You know, that kind of overlap are fundamentally good dynamics to, to build a renewable energy resource at a given location. Um, so what developers are doing is kind of desktop analyzing the entire, you know, buildable area in, in a given market, finding a good, a good big T line that can take the power and then you know, flat, uh, low-cost build land where we can ultimately inject the or build the solar or the wind farm uh, and then inject the power onto the system. So that's step one, and that's kind of the initial stages of development. And then there's, you know, permitting and other procurement costs that happen between initial development and kind of when the project actually goes online, and that's where I work. So... When you have land and an interconnection request into a given market, um, that's when I enter the picture and I talk to utilities or potential buyers of this power before the actual power plant gets built. And essentially, we put together a price for which what we can sell the power at. Um, and if the price is, you know, competitive with the market or, you know, is, is a good location electrically on the system, that's when we get traction and we can, you know, talk with the utility, enter into an agreement and, you know, structure a contract that basically allows us to receive fixed energy payments for the energy the power plant produces over the life or a shorter amount of time for the project. So, you know, why that is critical is because before uh, a contract is signed, you know, no one is really comfortable investing in in a power plant that has cash flow that could be uncertain. So, you know, if, if you know, I want to go sink, uh, you know, my own money into a project, I would want to be certain that we could sell the power for a given price that's going to meet the kind of return thresholds that our company or the, the market looks for in, in a given uh, market. So essentially what my job is is to sign a, a contract for the power coming from this facility, and basically, once we can point to 15 to 25 years of of a fixed price cash flow from uh, a renewable energy generating asset, then you know we can actually move forward with building the project and getting investors to uh, you know provide equity funding for the project, and then also take out debt on the project as well and get private uh, tax equity investors. So once we can point to a economical or, a, you know, a, a low risk contract where we know we can meet our uh, specific kind of revenue needs for the next 20 years, that's when we can go to the market, get financing, and then move forward with actually building the project. Um, a few kind of factors that make certain areas better than others. Um, with, with wind resource, you're going to find your best wind wind resource in the United States, right down the middle uh, of the United States, uh, in kind of the Great Plains region, all the way down to, to Texas. Um, you know, Texas is one of the biggest markets for uh, wind power out there right now, and there's no kind of 
environmental attribute incentives. They just have a really good resource there. The ERCOT grid is relatively easy to interconnect to, and the underlying market, ERCOT, which is where people buy and sell power on a daily basis, um, has good fundamental prices for that for that power. So, you know, that's an area where we like to develop. Additionally, on the solar side, um, also a good resource in the south. Um, the the market fundamentals for you know how the power is valued from the solar energy versus what it trades for on on a daily basis is also very good as well. Um, so Texas is a is a really big market for renewable uh, energy development. I think the market for ERCA right now is about 90 gigawatts overall, and you know the expectation of solar build out in in that state is is you know approaching. I think 15 gigawatts in the next few years. So it's pretty substantial in that market and just uh, solid underlying fundamentals that kind of make Texas a great place to develop. Other areas that are good for renewable energy development, I mentioned the Great Plains is a good wind resource uh, region. And yeah, basically, you know, in the SPP and MISO marketplaces, which is the equivalent of ERCOT, but in the kind of Midwestern states, um, there's a lot of good wind resource that, you know, makes the, if you go and build a power plant, you're going to produce more energy and receive more energy from the market. Um, one kind of issue and a fundamental issue in, in the United States power system is that not always where people consume power is located near, you know, where the resource is abundant from a renewable energy perspective. Uh, so, you know, if you um, are producing uh, wind, wind energy from Iowa, uh, you know, not all of that power is necessarily going to be consumed in, uh, the state of Iowa. Generally, the load center in the Midwest is, is in Chicago. So that power needs to flow from, from west to east. And on the system, there are losses and congestion associated with getting power from one location to another location. Uh, and that's cost to, uh, a power producing asset. So, you know, ideally, you'd like to produce to uh, build a power plant as close to load as possible. But obviously, you can't build a, a wind farm in downtown Chicago without it being extremely expensive. So, um, you know, it's kind of finding the balance between uh, good resource and then where the load is and how much transmission is in between those two locations. And you know, that's kind of how you you find the the right location to build a power plant. Um, in terms of kind of Technology cost curves and, and things going on in the market. Um, wind kind of took off in the early 2000s, where you saw you know gigawatts of, of wind energy built out. There are federal tax incentives like the production tax credit, which were you know layered into the market that kind of helped wind energy become economical or at least bridge the gap to to be built out in the market. And then since then, wind wind costs have come down pretty substantially and. You know, with or without the federal uh, incentive to produce wind energy, you know, it's it's economical relative to the kind of wholesale power price that is occurring at the same time. Um, and then solar has kind of taken the same similar cost curve over the last few years. I think, you know, in the last six to seven years, solar costs have come down like fivefold from, you know, what they were. Uh, in like 2010 type time frame. So with that declining cost curve, you see a technology like solar basically 
become it 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 enters the the realm where you know essentially that building that resource into a market where you sell the power from that resource all you're doing is kind of spreading the capital costs associated with building a large solar facility across the life of the asset and then if that makes sense for you know a buyer or a utility to pay for the power at that price then you know it's kind of in the money or an economical resource and over the past few years solar has you know declined so much that it's just you know the the cheapest kind of on peak asset in the market right now um so when you know we go out and develop our uh renewable energy projects across the US and what we're kind of looking for is utility demand for those assets so you know a utility will re- release a request for proposals uh which represents you know a future need for both uh capacity and energy to to serve their customer base going forward um and essentially you know when we identify that opportunity we we you know participate in that solicitation and try to give them the lowest price for a power purchase agreement or a, a PPA um and what we're seeing in the market right now is basically wind and and solar is the one and two technology that utilities are asking for because it's the cheapest uh cheapest resource it's pretty quick to deploy and um you know it provides a good a good integration into their system uh, i'm going to go ahead and stop there and kind of open it up to to questions cool i've i've got lots of questions but i'm curious if if somebody else has a question that they're dying to ask first you talked a little bit about kind of energy storage obviously transition of more energy resources you know, battery storage pump storage type just kind of like how you, how you do that yeah we've seen a lot of solar only and wind only projects get built over the last 5 to 10 years and storage is becoming a a pretty prevalent technology in fact just about every project that we think about whether it's wind or solar we're thinking about how to add uh storage as a co-located resource on top of that uh in in certain markets it has a different different capabilities or or um capabilities that it can can provide to the system uh but generally you know wind and solar are intermittent resources so you're you know not always able to produce power if the you know cloud goes in front of the sun and you stop producing so there's a lot of different use cases for storage technology but one would be kind of firming up that solar asset so you know obviously the solar production has a, a certain trajectory throughout the day uh, and have you know intermittent spikes and drop off of energy generation you can use that uh, storage technology to kind of smooth the the solar production so a utility isn't necessarily having to to manage these oversupply and undersupply scenarios throughout the day additionally um and and more of a, a short term battery can kind of fulfill that that functionality so a 1 to 2 hour battery can provide those services um a bigger use case for storage technology on solar resources right now would probably be um kind of peak firming um so you know depending on where you are in the United States what what utility or market you're in uh the grid is going to hit the peak at around you know between 7 to 9 p.m. and so you know if it's if it's 
August and the sun goes down or is starting to fade around 7.30 or 8 p.m., you're not getting the same solar generation that you would at, you know, 3 p.m. when the sun is the highest in the sky. Um, if, if you've charged a lithium-ion battery that has four-hour capabilities throughout the day and then discharge it as the, the solar kind of fades in the evening peak when people actually are using the power as much, that's like a firming capacity play. And so the way that utilities kind of assign value to those assets would be around the concept of, of capacity. So whereas the solar would be deemed to not provide the full capacity or potential that it has to produce because it's misaligned with when the peak actually happens, uh, storage allows you to kind of bridge that gap. Um, and in, in terms of kind of the market fundamentals, storage still is an expensive technology. The cost curves are declining, and you know some some recent supply chain disruptions in, in the world doesn't improve uh, economics on any technology really. Um, but my expectation is over the next five to ten years, storage is going to be paired with just about every intermittent renewable resource that's put on the grid um, because it it just makes sense for integration of intermittents. How do you think that'll impact? The capital costs. I mean, you mentioned cost curves coming down, capital costs coming down, levelized cost of electricity. Calculations that you guys do are competitive, right? And they have to be competitive for you guys to invest. But then, if you're required to add a storage element to it, how does that influence it? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think as you know, the demand for storage technology increases, the supply chains of you know those underlying technology and equipment providers is going to increase and you're going to achieve efficiencies from that. Technology is going to improve on a similar fashion that, you know, solar technology's cost decreased over the past few years. Um, I don't think it's happening as, as steep as it did for solar, especially with, you know, everything that's going on in the world with supply chain constraints and, and commodities costs increasing. Um, but, um, yeah, it's it's going to improve as as the supply chain kind of builds out and alleviates, and there's there's more entrants in the market. Um, you know, right now we see utilities dipping their toes in the water and asking for for storage technologies because they they see the value of having this dispatchable resource that can charge from the renewables that they're buying and then you know discharge when they want them. But it is a, a new technology and has its limitations, and you know the sticker price on some storage resources are, are going to be higher than expected. So we're in kind of a, a stage where it's it's starting to ramp up and kind of be in line with the market. But you know it's I think greasing some of the supply chain uh, issues will will be imperative to seeing a, a larger amount of build out. I'm curious if the cost of storage doesn't come down. At the same rate that renewables are put onto the market, or we'll, we'll just say intermittent uh, electricity resources are put on the market, do you think the cost to the consumer stands a chance to go up? I think it does. Um, you know, there's a lot of different variables in that question. You know, you've got thermal resources that just, you know, almost every single utility in the United States kind of has carbon-free or greenhouse gas reduction goals that, you know, uh, are 100% or, you know, close to 100% by 2045 or 2050. So we're kind of in the early stages of that carbon or decarbonization transition. 
And so, you know, they have thermal resources that have a ton of capital expenditure that is in the ground right now. You know, those those depend on fuel prices that are obviously volatile, and you've seen that volatility in the last six to 12 months, especially on natural gas and oil. Um, and so the expectation is, you know, thermal facilities retiring is going to change the supply stack. So there's going to be different resources that the utility can can rely on to meet demand on a daily basis. And, you know, the procurement schedule is to procure um, renewable resources, at least, you know, over the next five to 10 years in a manner that can will have a, a positive impact on um, what a residential customer pays for for their the power that they consume. Um, I think, you know, those storage um, cost efficiencies is going to kind of offset, you know, the incremental demand that utilities will have to pay for new resources that kind of achieves the same outcome as their existing fleet. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I think the market will, will work itself out from that respect. And a lot of the thermal resources, you know, they have, they have the opposite uh, effect where costs are increasing from O&M and maintenance and then also the fuel costs that have the potential to skyrocket in a month and or, you know, plummet the following month. So I think that kind of natural hedge on the, the technology cost is, is a benefit to the, the residential rate payer. On these power purchase agreements that you're putting together with the developer and utility, are those uh, fixed rate for the next 20 years, or is there very, you know, is that rate fluctuating? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, it it depends. So, you know, the, I think the standard power purchase agreement that you've seen in the past five years with the utility buyer is kind of a fixed 20 to 25 year contract. Um, you know, it's it's not the the fanciest contract, but it's the most low risk from from both perspectives. So for our perspective, a utility buyer with investment grade credit and having a fixed price on all of the power that we sell to the utility is is an escalator is you know a contract mechanism that you can build in there. Um, you know historically it's a fixed rate escalator, but with inflation and other kind of market fundamentals changing uh, in the past few months, I think having some kind of mechanism beyond just like a fixed rate to compensate for inflationary changes on the project will be will be important because. You know, if you lock in a price for the basically the cost of the project um, for the next 20 years, your power purchase agreement price should account for that, you know, in both in year one and in year 20 of your contract. But then you also have operating expenses along the way, which are exposed to inflation. So if inflation, you know, rises substantially and your escalator doesn't keep up with that, you know, that's going to impact the, the margin on the project. So these are all, you know, things that we're very uh, receptive of in the market and trying to price accordingly. But generally, you know, it's there. The PPA is kind of like a technology hedge. So you're just smoothing all the capex that you've spent in, you know, in year one to get that facility built across 20 years of a contract, and you know, relying on that revenue stream to make make the money back on the project. What do you see happening in 20 years when all these Solar fields that are out there right now. 
the panels have been around 20, 25 years. They're out of warranty. They still work just fine. Mm -hmm. You see the opportunity to the ocean contract for whatever power that system is producing, or you see a future where we'll take the existing framework and just swap out the solar panels for the solar panels? Yeah. No, that's a good question. Um, I think in 20 years, once the contract rolls off, so the, the solar panels technically have a 35-year life, and they kind of degrade very minimally over the life of the asset. And, you know, it's anywhere between – it's a fraction of a percentage every single year. So that affects both the output and also the generation. So you're kind of losing energy generation throughout the life of the asset. But in year 21, after a 20-year contract rolls off, there's still you know 15 years of useful life on that asset. So there's no kind of current plans to repower um, a, a solar facility after year 20. Um, you know, there's not a lot of solar projects that have been in the ground for you know more than 20 years, and this is all kind of new technology that we're putting into the ground. So, you know, I think it's going to be whatever the market conditions at that time. You know, if that warrants the new technology that has a better kind of output than the old technology at that time and the market kind of warrants additional capex on the project, that probably, you know, makes sense. And whoever owns the project at that time will have to make that decision. Um, but I think any project that you put in the ground, at least right now, they're thinking about operating it for the next 35 years and selling into the market. But, but the key distinction and the assumption that developers have to make is that you know, once you have your utility deal or your PPA that rolls off, how are you going to sell the power uh, from that facility? So if I have a power plant in ERCOT or, or SBP, that underlying market allows me to sell the power into the market or to someone who will buy the power. Whereas in, in other markets where it's a bilateral market, there's no there's no underlying index price for power that happens on a daily basis. So essentially, you would need to find a buyer for that power after the contract rolls off. And because no one really knows uh, what power is going to be in you know 2045 when your 2025 operational project you know hits the end of its PPA life, how how much you're going to sell that power for down the road? It's hard yeah. to say. We build assumptions. Right. We build assumptions into our model, and that's what the, you know, the finance of the project is based off of initially. And to finance a project, you can't make overly rosy assumptions on where that power price is going to be. You have to kind of make the correct assumptions, and that's a factor of inflation, uh, the supply stack in 20 years from now. If there's a carbon tax that increases the price that you could sell the power for. And, and a lot of other mechanics, but there are forecasting services for that, and you know, some are higher than others, and you know, you you make that assumption, and, and that there's risk around it, and your project depends on the last 15 years of its life to to make up the revenue. That's a risky investment, but if you're comfortable with that risk, then you know, you'll move forward. Yeah. Yeah, on a normalized basis or a discounted basis, those last 15 years should be a very small fraction of the total net present value, right? Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and the underlying price or purchase agreement, right? Meaning, at the end of your 20-year life, if you're in Colorado, 
there's no guarantee that Excel will re-sign up with you to purchase your power. Um, presumably, if it's there and they need it, then they will. But if mm-hmm. the demand's not there and it's not doesn't fit their models, then they don't have to, right? Yep. Yeah, that is that is correct. Um, you know, if in, in some agreements, you know, you have the ability to to sell the asset at the end of the life or, or something like that, and you know, a utility like Excel is still going to have demand uh, for power in 20 years. You know, that that kind of chunk of of, de- of supply that they're providing to the market is not necessarily going to go away. In fact, they're probably going to you know need more resources to serve additional load that is created because more people have moved to Denver and are consuming more electricity. Um, so that that is a, a risk, and depending on an uncertain future, and in you know once a contract falls off, is is absolutely a risk. And and during that time, you know, 20 years from now, when there are new technologies in the marketplace and and different fundamentals, and it's a completely different market, um, you know, could uh could could solar panels from you know the early years of 2022 like be incompetitive with the market? Of course, there's there's a risk for that, or if there's some kind of yeah. fundamental change in, in the cost for, for solar equipment down the road. Um, but generally, you know, you're you're mm-hmm. gonna find a buyer for this you know large investment that you have in the ground that you can sell to to whoever. And you're actually even seeing uh, wind and solar farms rolling off their their um, PPA contracts like currently, and so they're merchant projects in the marketplace. Um, and you know, you're taking the spot market price, so the the day had a real time price for energy, or you're going to go find a buyer. And in in a lot of cases, because there's so many issues in the there's so much demand for renewables right now, and the supply is constrained for a lot of different reasons, both getting new projects on the system, buying equipment, um, just like general disruptions in the world, um, you know, having something online available already is is I think uh, uh, says a lot so having a merchant asset is probably you know lower risk to contract once the PBA has, has fallen out than building and financing a new project that has inherent risks to it how is the industry addressing both the transmission problem and the NIMBY problem not not this notwithstanding this was a yes in my backyard please can we build this this would be great which I love but I've heard a lot of opposition. I mean, any energy project that goes in anywhere, the people that are closest to it often will uh, be opposed to it. So how how is the industry progressing to combat that? Well, when we're developing new projects, I mean, we're participating in a, in a free market. So, um, you know, at no point are we going to be able to develop something that if there's fundamental issues with, you know, whoever has rights to land that we're developing on or in that location, you know, there's kind of no way around that. So the only time we'd ever enter into a, a lease with a landowner, either for a project or, you know, a transmission line to get to a substation, um, you know, those are all uh, at-will contracts that, you know, if we provide the terms that they're, they like, um, you know, they will contract with us. So we we try to meet the market as, as best as possible. And in, in a lot of cases, we have to beat the market because, you know, it, it's just staying ahead of the curve and being able to contract and beat out other developers means you sometimes pay a, pay a premium. So from that perspective, 
if someone is opposed to a project, you know, and is unwilling to to contract at you know reasonable market prices, we're probably not going to move forward in, in that given location. So we are kind of subject to people's opinions, whether you know there's kind of a existential issue with renewables or not. Then you know that's that's going to be a more challenging location to to contract. And um, that being said, you know there's so much wind and solar that's been contracted and leased out there that. I think for those kind of fundamental reasons that, you know, people are open to having developers build on their, their land and, and, and getting cash flow from, you know, a resource that they otherwise wouldn't be using. I think that speaks to itself that, uh, you know, the market seems, seems to like that opportunity. And if you have a lot of land and you're, you know, you're, you're done farming on the land, which is, you know, labor intensive work and you want to kind of outsource and, and receive a revenue for the value from that property, then it's a great way to do that. The clean line story is a sad one, right? Meaning the disconnect between where the resource is and where the consumer is, like you mentioned, can be vast often, or, you know, you have to have a long distance and, um, and clean line works really hard to get their direct current transmission line built across country and ultimately got shut down because they couldn't get like across Arkansas. Um, you know, they're trying to take wind power from Oklahoma to uh, the Tennessee Valley Authority um, and back east. And it was like almost a decade long project that is paused right now. Um, do you see that changing like or more direct current transmission lines being built like large scale transmission across the country? I mean, does that, does that start small? Does that get bigger? Yeah. Um, no, I mean, building transmission is, is a difficult thing to do. You cross so many boundaries of different regulating authorities and ownership rights and, you know, that kind of jumbled up of different opinions that is not, you know, are not necessarily going to be on the same page as one transmission project that crosses all of these projects or all of these boundaries. Um, so th- that is that is a tough one to answer. I mean, it's fundamentally it's a cooperation failure, um, yeah. which is, is reasonable. I mean, that's what makes it so difficult to get a, a transmission line. It's it's lack of cooperation. But um, I think the need for transmission build out in the U.S. to kind of bolster the grid is is very very real, especially if the plan is to continue to procure renewables and and be a carbon free grid. Um, transmission, I think, can be a hard thing to explain to your average, you know, resident on what what the need is for transmission. Um, so that can be a difficult message to communicate. Um, but in terms of you know private developers like CleanLine going out and trying to string together um, uh, leases to to build a transmission line, you know, not always with eminent domain available at their disposal. Um, I think that's a very challenging thing to do, but ultimately the value is there uh, to build these high voltage uh, DC lines to, to take power from where the resource is good to where the demand is high. So the, the underlying value is there. It's kind of just bridging the gap with a complex regulatory uh, nature beneath it. Where are the jobs, Saxon? How, how, do, how, how do you get a job? How do you... So manufacturing, are we bringing manufacturing of uh, any of these facilities back to the U.S.? Or? Yeah, I think that's 
one good idea, especially uh, in light of you know a few uh, Department of Commerce petitions happening recently. Um, you know the supply chain from from China and Southeast Asia for solar panels is is constrained and and subject to, to tariff increases and things like that. So. Uh, producing panels uh, in the United States is is a safe bet. So being a being a U.S. based manufacturer of solar panels is a very good hedge uh, currently. And it's higher labor costs, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. Other costs, you know, yeah. you avoid transportation costs and things like that that are also skyrocketing, just like everything else. And yeah, you have better kind of purview on you know how those panels are produced and and the kind of standards that U.S.-based companies have, but you would also pay a premium as well. Um, so being kind of exposed to the supply chain on <clears throat> equipment procurement is is not ideal, and I think the market is seeing that in a very real way over the past few months, um, which which you know isn't favorable to the industry. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of projects that we're relying on a, a robust supply chain that you know is, is having all these disruptions enter it into it. And you know, what we've kind of discussed is that you're basically building projects, assuming kind of taking estimates on costs, and if there's a huge disconnect between you know where the market is for selling the power from the projects and what it actually takes to procure the equipment and build the projects, you know, that's just going to create a, a bad dynamic for both the, you know, buyer of the power and the, the seller of the power. So, what's the average size installed capacity project that you guys are looking at? Like, I mean, Vestas has their enormous windmills now that's like five megawatts, seven megawatts, even almost, um, which is incredible, right? That you can have that in one turbine. Um, I mean, are you guys looking at 10 megawatt projects, 100 megawatts, gigawatt scale? What's what's the scale? Yeah, I would say the scale that we're looking at is generally over 100 megawatts. That's kind of where you get the kind of baseline economies of scale to mobilize and build a project. Um, so 100 megawatts would be, you know, depending, you know, some markets, 100 megawatts is too big for the size projects that they want, but. Generally, for a utility scale project, 100 megawatts is the threshold that you want to meet. That is low case on you know where you're going to be competitive with other large projects, where those economies of scale uh, it, it makes sense to develop. If you <clears throat> build too big, um, you're going to be constrained on the injection capacity side. So how much power you can inject in one location uh, at a given moment is is also going to constrain the up end of the size project that you build. So if you go build, um, you know, a gigawatt wind farm in a an area that has not as much transmission capacity, like that's that's not a good that's not a good investment because you're going to get curtailed or have congestion on your asset and the power. The system just doesn't isn't giving you the price signal to build that much energy in that location. Um, I think the baseline project that we're seeing out there from a utility scale perspective that also prices very well relative to the market is 200 to 300 megawatts. Interesting. What about offshore wind? That is up and coming. Uh, and, I, you know, my company just won a large contract for offshore wind in the Northeast, um, along with a few other developers as well. Um, and so, 
it's very expensive that it, you're, you know, it's a very specialized industry to be in. Um, and you know, the re it's, it's a whole new animal relative to onshore wind and, uh, onshore solar. So I think it's, you know, having the capital, uh, financial capabilities to basically, you know, enter into those large leases for offshore wind rights, uh, and then also kind of move forward with a very large scale project, um, for, for years to come. So it, I think why, there was, why is it expensive? Why is it expensive? Well, I just, I mean, I understand a floating turbine sounds more expensive to install than a yeah. onshore turbine, right? But no, and then there's also <clears throat> maintenance as well. So, well, the, the underlying leases for the, the offshore mm. wind is, is expensive. That's a real cost to the project that you have to incorporate. Um, I think that technology is more expensive to have a, a floating wind turbine. Uh, than it is to, you know, build a wind, wind turbine on land and then to mobilize the equipment, both from a construction perspective and then also an operations and maintenance perspective. It's cheaper to drive a pickup out to a wind turbine than it is to fly a helicopter or a boat and, you know, drop uh, an O&M ignition yeah. into it. And then getting that equipment out there, the fuel cost required to get there, uh, you know, all of that stuff creates a premium. But that being said, uh, offshore wind has an interesting profile where you get more resource from the wind and it kind of has a more stable um, stable output, which which is beneficial. So offshore wind will be a good baseload resource. At, and it's also close to load being in, in the Northeast, which is generally land constrained for wind. So it's a great, uh, great new technology, but it's just beginning to kind of proliferate. I understand your point. I think having a wind turbine on top of a building sounds like a good play. It's an abundant resource. I think trying to, to build that equipment on top of a skyscraper I don't know that I could think of a more expensive place to put a wind turbine <laughs> and spread that cost, uh, even if, you know, the, the resource is good at the top of, you know, a skyscraper. I think the underlying cost associated with that would just be extremely high. Like maybe, yeah, go put one on top of Sears Tower right now. It would be expensive, but while you're in the building process, yeah. you might be able to maybe put that in somewhere. I don't know. Try. I think theoretically, you know, you could, um, but then if you kind of weigh that against building a wind turbine a hundred miles to the west and just transporting the power across a, a T line that's there. I have to imagine that probably pencils out a little bit better. Um, but um, yeah, it's an interesting concept. Cool. All right. Well, thanks Saxon. Thanks guys for joining. Yeah, thank you everyone.